taken a break for a few weeks as the semester began, but we're very excited to be back to recording and our amazing and wonderful producer, Liana, who makes this podcast work, is here with us today. That's amazing for us because <laughs> for multiple years now, Liana has really held held this together uh, with Thread and Band-Aid. But also it worries me and it worries Mark that she is here because we're not quite doing things right. And so she's here to make sure we don't uh, engage in mischief. But we're so glad to have you, Liana. Now, our guest today is Ignacio Lagos. I've known Ignacio a long time now, uh, both by reputation when he was a junior associate uh, and now has uh, become a partner at Cleary Gottlieb, but also because he's gotten to work on some truly amazing transactions, the latest restructuring of Argentine debt, I think Ignacio worked on the Ecuador uh, restructuring as well, which had a number of innovative features. But one of the topics and the primary topic that we're hoping that he will talk to us about today is sustainability-linked bonds. And Ignacio has been at the forefront of introducing sustainability-linked bonds in the sovereign space. And so even though he is a relatively young partner, he has already been a pioneer. So welcome to our podcast, Ignacio. And if you don't mind, I'd love for us to start with how you got involved in SLB space and in the design of these innovative products before we get into the nitty gritty of them. Yeah, sure. Um, hi, me too. Hi, Mark. It's, uh, it's really a privilege for me to be here. I think uh, you said you long me for a long time. And, and I think even before that, I was already reading your papers and your, your blog spots, same with Mark. So uh, to me, it really is a privilege to be here today. I also think I have to do a disclaimer here. I'm not a partner at Clear Gottlieb. I'm still an associate, uh, but no longer a junior associate, uh, a bit more senior. Um, they need me, to me make you a partner the, right me away. Me too the future, so yes. <laughs> yeah, right away, Cleary Gottlieb management. <laughs> yeah. So um, it's interesting how I got into SLB bonds, um, because as you said, I've been working a lot for sovereigns, um, you know, I, I represent a number of sovereigns in, in Latin America. And I think the reason why I started working on SLBs is basically when my clients came forward and say, we want to do this sustainability linked bonds. Um, and then you start seeing, okay, what are sustainability linked bonds? What I'm gonna have to draft? And so also you start doing all this research and, and I really became quickly passionate about, about this bond. So, that's how I got it um, uh, involved in them, and and really, you know, since since then, just as I said, researching more and 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 you know, kind of putting some innovations in there. So can I can I um 
start us with kind of a um a, a more conceptual question before we get into some of the details about the SLB market. So I always I struggle with coming up with a kind of a coherent explanation for what SLBs are trying to accomplish or maybe I should I should put it differently. I, I struggle figuring out how we should evaluate whether SLBs are a good or a bad thing. And so it, it, the basic structure, as I understand it, is it's sort of a plain vanilla bond, but the coupon will step up a little bit if the issuer of the bond doesn't hit some pre-specified target. And you know that might be a, a target having to do with some climate-related objective, or it could be, you know, it could be something uh, something related to that. But I guess. The question is, are we supposed to think of SLBs as important tools in driving a transition toward a more climate-friendly economy? Or are we supposed to think of them as just like basically vanilla bonds that have some small probability of, of paying a little bit more than the initial coupon and that really don't have much at all to do with the transition to a greener economy. Is one of those the right way to think about them? I think it's a bit of a mix of both. And, and I think that's an excellent question in the sense of there's a lot of pressure on what SLBs should be doing. And at least my experience is SLBs are instruments that an issuer wants to put out in the market, um, mostly to show the market that they are committed to the environment. You know, they're saying, I'm here, I'm doing all this stuff. I have all these objectives. I want to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and whatever, and I want the market to know. Um, so I'm just gonna put this bond out there. And as you said, set a target and commit to meet it. And if I don't do it, then there's gonna be some kind of penalty. Now, what I'm trying to say with this, I think, I don't think the SLB is the reason why the issuer goes to the market, right? They would probably go to the market Anyways, even if it wasn't through an SLB, they probably issue a plain vanilla bond. Uh, but the SLB is just a way of them showing and say, hey, I know investors are interested in, in seeing us focusing in, in sustainable development or sustainable growth and not just growth, right? They want us to, to show that we are committed to the environment, that we are committed to the well-being of the populations uh, surrounding us. And, and we do that and we want to show you and, and we want to show you and we're actually going to put you know, a, a firm commitment with teeth to it. But, but but that's it. So so it sounds like the way the process would work, the decision making process, is that the issuer would, for reasons independent of the SLB, set some targets, targets that it thought were achievable, maybe ambitious, maybe not, but that it has its own reasons for specifying the targets, and then decides, well, we can, given these targets, one of the options available to us is to issue an SLB that that uses them as a trigger point. But it's not the case that a, an issuer would change its targets so as to justify the issuance of an SLB. Does that, does that question make sense? Like the targets are, they're intrinsic to the issuer. They're not, a, they're not affected by the, the possibility of issuing the SLB. Correct. And, and, you know, 
as you probably know, these SLBs are, you know, the standard is set by the IGMA principles. And, you know, we don't need to get into the details of all of them, but precisely what you're saying is when you are selecting the KPI, right, the key performance indicator or the variable that you're going to be looking at, um, what the principle says is it needs to be relevant or core to your overall business, right? You cannot just pick something that has nothing to do with it. And, you know, I don't have experience in every issue out there, but when I do it for sovereigns, the targets or the KPIs that they are selecting is in general, in most cases, something that is already uh, a commitment that they have, for example, under the Paris Agreement, right? So they've been tracking this information for, for, a, for a while. They've been seeing how they evolve. They made a commitment in that agreement to say, I'm going to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, let's say, by 40% in the next uh, five years or so on. Um, and now they're just moving that uh, target and an idea and commitment into the financial markets and put it into instruments. And this time, the big difference is that there is a penalty if they don't meet it, which is not something that happens under the Paris Agreement. So, Ignacio, just so that I get um, the basics clear, th this was very helpful. And I, I know we, we've only seen a couple of sovereign SLBs, and later I want to ask you what you think the scope for the expansion in this market uh, is. But in terms of the basic sovereign SLBs, is it the case that, say, a country like Uruguay or Chile will uh, have this internal commitment at the Paris Accords that they're going to uh, reduce carbon emissions by a certain percentage within the next five years? And then the issuance of the SLB will give them an incentive to meet a slightly higher target. So 40% reduction, but we're going to do an SLB and we're going to aspire to 45% reduction. Or is it, the, we've committed to 40%, we're going to get to 40% and we're going to raise some money because that's a pretty good goal. And so we should get some reward from the market for doing that. Which one is it, or is it too early to tell? Or put differently, are the SLBs giving countries an incentive to do more, to produce more climate reduction than, say, the Paris Accords? Um, I think I think it depends. It, it it might or it might not. I think the the, the key point is when you when you're designing the SLB, the target needs to be ambitious, right? So I think at that moment you're going to look what you have as a commitment under the Paris Agreement, and say you know let's say that you had a commitment of reducing forty percent in ten years, and you're already in year eight, and you only have two more years to go. And you know you just kind of almost accomplish that goal. Then if you go out to the market with an SLB that says, "Oh, I'm actually going to do this what I said I was going to do in the Paris Agreement," and that's it, people are not going to see that as ambitious, which is, you know, a key key a key concept here in SLBs. You have to design an ambitious target. Um, so it depends. And 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 this is just to give an example for Uruguay, for example, they had a target. Um, for greenhouse gas emissions under the Paris Agreement that was measured over their 
GDP, right? And they were doing pretty good. They were, you know, going towards the target. But what happened is that with COVID, uh, GDP decreased, and that affected the, the ratio, right? Not necessarily that means that they ended up issuing more greenhouse gas emissions, but just because it was a, a ratio of greenhouse gas emissions over GDP, it just affected the ratio. And all of a sudden, when we were about to issue the SLB, you could kind of say there were a few steps back. So even trying to meet the target that they had under the Paris Agreement uh, seemed very ambitious. Um, and, and as I said, I think the commitment is there. But one thing is to say it under the Paris Agreement, I'm not saying that they don't take it seriously because they do. And another thing is to put it in paper and and say, I'm actually going to pay more of a coupon if I do this. And, and, and one thing that I also think is relevant to think is, Mitu, you were saying, you know, trying to take some advantage or, or be rewarded, let's say. And and I don't think looking for that reward, which I think you were probably trying to, you know, aiming to refer to the what we, what's called as the greenium, right? Um, I'm not sure people know if there is one out there. So I don't think when when issuers go for SLBs, they're not trying to reduce at least there's no evidence that you can reduce the cost of financing because you're issuing SLB compared to a plain vanilla bond. Um, so as I say, I think the driver here is to say, look, I'm doing a lot of effort to put this, to meet these targets. I think you guys should know. Um, and I think you should, you know, reward me in the sense of buy my bonds, but, but you know, probably they will get plain vanilla per bonds purchased if they were went the other way. So this, uh, I hope you don't mind. I'm I'm gonna follow up on this. This is yep. again very clear and helpful for us to understand this. Since you've done, you've worked on so many sovereign and uh, corporate issuances, you can correct me on this. But one one of my core assumptions for any of these transactions, and particularly when one is doing an innovative transaction with funky pricing. And by by funky pricing, I mean including contingencies in a fixed, in, fixed income instrument. And my impression from the old fuddy-duddy days is that Fixed income investors really get the heebie-jeebies when you include any contingent aspect in their bonds because they, they worry about how to price it. Are the SLBs designed in some ways to make sure that this new bond will be liquid with the rest of the bonds that, you know, if the step up and step down, which is great, but it won't be such a big effect that you can't trade it similarly to the other bonds. Because I, my memory from when I worked on these transactions, and I never got to work on anything as cool as an SLB, which I regret, is that debt managers are obsessed with the quote-unquote curve. And they need the, their bonds to be on their curve. And they keep talking about, will this be on the curve? And I I've been wondering, like these SLBs, they're contingent instruments, but they're tiny, tiny contingency. And so do they basically, because of the lack of a greenium, uh, just trade like uh, 
a similar Uruguay bond with the same maturity? Or do you have to worry where it will be on the curve? And I guess that is a question I'm babbling on, but it is a question as to whether or not this would be different for a different different type of country, because Uruguay and Chile are really strong issuers. One can be confident of them. They already have shown their climate commitment in other ways. Wondering whether, you know, the, the bond market is just like, yeah, I'm not worried about a Uruguay. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, whether, you know, I, I think we have to see a little bit more, you know, get more data as years go by to be able really to to tell whether there is a difference. My understanding so far is that they are not traded any anywhere different in the curve than a plain vanilla bond. I, I might be wrong. And as I said, I think I think we need more data. And I think investors are still trying to fully understand these bonds. But my impression is that they are pricing them kind of the same as a plain vanilla bond. As you say, there's there's a contingent element to them, but the contingency is, is very small. Generally, the, the coupon step up, which is the most frequent uh, penalty, is about 10% of the uh, of the coupon. So I, I don't think they put significant weight on them when they're pricing it. Um, I think people might struggle a little bit more when there's a coupon step down because that's when they don't like it. You know, they price the bond with a coupon and so on. And, and if you have a step down, I think that's a little bit more challenging for them to price it. But Uruguay did it and it was a successful transaction. Um, so again, I think hopefully will, you know, my impression is that th there will not be much of a difference either way. Um, I think you're also right that these are the A students, right? Uruguay and Chile. And, and we should see when there's uh, another issuer out there, uh, maybe that is not investment grade, if there's any difference. And, and we might, I think one of the things that SLBs provide, it's I think increased demand. So you get, you, you get to reach investors that otherwise, mainly in Europe, that, that otherwise uh, a Latin American issuer country might not get. Um, so maybe that increased demand for us for, or an issuer that has not that much demand in the first place might make a difference. I, I don't know what we'll have to see. It, it is a really puzzling market as I listen to all of these descriptions. And, and one of the things I really have appreciate and I'm, and I'm benefiting from Ignacio is your, you have a very clear eyed sense of these instruments and describe them in ways that are really helpful while stripping away some of the, the hype that I think has been attached to them, maybe by people who know them less well. But I'm I'm puzzled by all of these, in some ways, maybe contradictory characteristics that we assign to these bonds. They're, you know, for some people, although you you've been very careful, I think, not to say this, but for some people, they're important and independent tools that will drive climate action. And yet they're not priced any differently or they're not priced much differently. And as Me Too points out, it's really important to the finance ministers who approve these issuances that they be priced essentially the same as a vanilla bond. And yet apparently they also grant access to a larger market, which I would have thought would have more significant pricing implications than that. I guess I'm... I'm still puzzled, and I come back to to 
the question that was motivating where I started, which is the the optimistic story of SLBs and green bonds and other types of climate financial instruments is that they're tools for driving or ensuring the transition to a greener economy. And I guess, given all of these things that we're talking about, is it even possible to design? It's possible to design a, an instrument like that, but would anybody buy it? Would any would any country issue it? You know, something just hypothetically, we're going to set a brand new uber ambitious target and we're going to specify a significant penalty if we don't make it. You, that That instrument would would have real teeth to it and real credibility but i'm i'm just getting the impression that nobody would issue and nobody would buy it if 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 someone came up with it yeah i think nobody will issue right nobody will issue something if they are not confident that they are setting targets that they can meet uh, again that doesn't mean that they just expect the targets to meet themselves right they they expect that they're going to have to do a lot of effort to get there but it is you know, they, they do assume that they'll be able to to meet them. Um, so whether whether anyone buy them, I also don't think so. I don't think anyone will buy it either if you're just putting something that with a variable and a target that seems just so off from the issuer. Um, I don't I think it just it will just create a lot of noise. Yeah, I don't think anyone will buy that. So Ignacio, just... Uh... This is going to be so helpful when we discuss this in class because it will it will give both us and the students a really nice, clear foundation to talk about these. One of the other questions I had, I, I was listening to, I think maybe it was the finance minister of Uruguay on a podcast recently talking about the enormous amount of effort it took in coordinating across the different ministries in Uruguay to put in place all of the mechanisms necessary for their SLB. And he was uh, talking about it quite proudly and justifiably since Uruguay has been quite committed on the climate front, but my uh, simplistic lawyer brain immediately uh, shuddered in the sense of my memory, and you can tell me if this, this has changed in the modern world, my memory of doing these transactions is that the investment bank, the country says it needs money, it needs you know, $500 million or a billion dollars right away because they have some shortfall. And the investment bank says, there's a really good market window right now. We have to do the issuance. And then the poor associates at SNC and Cleary are given, you know, six hours between the hours of 12 a.m. and 6 a.m. to mark up some document. And then the deal is done. And that's how I remember these sovereign and even many of the sort of the big corporate transactions happening. That speed and meeting the market window is of the essence. And 
you never have the luxury to coordinate multiple departments. It's mostly just like, let's just cut and paste the last deal and pray. I used to call this the prayer method of drafting and pray that nobody screwed anything up. But uh, it just Uruguay seems like they're they're such a good issuer even when they had their restructuring they came out of it smelling so beautiful and clean can anybody else afford the kind of time that the the minister described that it was required uh, to do this bond issue i mean you worked on it so you actually know how much time it must have taken yeah so i think it's still the case that you know we get the call and we do the documents overnight and we get out um, for for general, just for for any uh, sovereign bond issuance, but this, I think these are different in the senses. As, as I was saying, is they don't wake up one day and say they just they want to do this SLP. It's something that they've been thinking for a while. And the key different difference here, which is luckily not so much of a hurdle for for the lawyers, but but for the issuer, is that they before they even can put a a sustainability link bond out in the market, they need to prepare what we call the framework. And the framework is basically a description of the strategy behind sustainable financing of, in this case, the country or Uruguay, right? So they need to describe what are all the things that they're doing to improve the environment in the country, what KPIs they're thinking of, even this again, even before they have a bond in mind or when they want to place it, they, they start working on this. Um, they, you know, they they set targets, they they explain why they're important, why they're ambitious and so on. And that process, as you say, takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of effort especially because, again, it's something that they haven't done before, but also, and most importantly, it involves them, you know, generally a bond issuance is conducted by the Ministry of Finance of a country. But when you're doing a framework or sustainability linked bond, you need to coordinate with people that you're not used to work with. Uh, so you need to reach out to the Ministry of Finance, you need, sorry, the Ministry of Environment, or you need to reach out to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, for example, if you're selecting a target that has, you know, it's already a target out there in a, in the Paris Agreement. So I think that's what, in the case of Uruguay, and, and in, I'm sure in the case of Chile as well, it's just I was not representing Chile, but the underwriter, so I got a little bit late on the stage. Um, but that's what takes a lot of time, you know, just, and, and as you say, Uruguay just, wants to do everything right all the time and they take all the time to think things through and to make sure that there's good cooperation among the ministries and that they know how they're going to get the information and how they're going to get it reviewed and so on and that takes a lot of time but in the middle of that time you know they if, if there is a window to go to the market they're going to go with a plain vanilla so you know i have a lot of sovereign clients and we are telling them for for a while you know, just if you think, you know, you should consider green sustainability linked bonds, just bear in mind that it takes a long time. And there's a lot of people out there already working on their frameworks without even knowing if they are going to issue a green bond or sustainability linked bond soon. Can we um, switch focus just a tiny bit to talk about what I guess we could call legal loopholes? So some of the the criticisms of SLBs and and me too and I have been thinking a bit about these um, uh, as we've looked at uh, mostly corporate 
but some sovereign uh, SLB bond documents too, is that sometimes there are uh, features in the legal terms that at least arguably would undermine the whatever commitment is baked into the coupon step up. So for instance, some of these bonds are callable without penalty before the first step update. I think um, uh, Uruguay is not this way if I if my memory serves. So I'm not talking about um, that issuance. But, but in many cases, there are loopholes like early callability that would potentially allow the the issuer to avoid paying the stepped up coupon if it learned that it wasn't going to hit the target. Are those kind of unimportant details? Are they important to fix? Uh, do, I guess sort of what's your your reaction to the state of the market in terms of its legal structure? I think the legal structure is pretty solid. Um, to be honest, I, I was uh, doing a little bit of research for this podcast, and that's when I came to realize that there was all this say criticisms of them um in terms of the call option my experience i mean i haven't seen any bond beyond um sustainability link bonds uh, or maybe if i seen just a few but it's not normal to have a bond that you can call at par uh you know prior to to maturity except for maybe the last three or six months you know and that that's mostly for administrative pur- purposes to do a liability management transaction and so on but having a bond that you can call and just pay the principal amount and that's it, you know, in year two is not normal. You know, it, it doesn't happen. I, I don't see it. Generally, what you have is a make whole redemption in which if you want to redeem it ahead of time, you have to pay a penalty. And so people don't generally use it. So, I, you know, after, so, so that's why it surprised me when I was reading so, some of these things about people worrying about issuers calling it early just to avoid the step up. And and when I delved a little bit more on, on the literature on it, I, I see that they spotted a few that I'll be interesting to, to see them, but at least the sample of the paper that I read, you know, it's just, they grab 200 bonds and then they say, okay, but we're going to leave aside all the ones that only have park call options the last three months and those with make whole redemption because uh, those we don't worry about anything weird because there's the penalty and what you know there's a protection within the bond itself and we're just going to focus on the other ones and when they focus on the other ones the other ones are a very small portion of that initial sample i think it's something about 19% um and and even within that sample it's the kind of issuer that is not investment grade that is you know kind of a more speculative investment in the first place so i don't know maybe i'm not familiar with those kind of issuers in the first place. But I think if you're going to analyze this, you have to go a little bit more deep and see who are those issuers in the first place. Because in my experience, for example, I've only seen, and I said I've never seen Redemption apart, but the only cases in where I have, I don't remember seeing it, but at least consider it, is, for example, coming out of a restructuring or a bond that nobody really wanted in the first place. And then the issuers say, you know, I'll try to get rid of it as soon as we can, and people say, okay, and then you just include a park call option. Um, but otherwise, I haven't seen it. So I, I don't know. I, it'll be very interesting to see those bonds specifically and whether there is really any kind of opportunistic approach by the issuer or not. Uh, but in the first case, if you're talking about those issuers 
I think as an investor, you know, again, I'm not saying that any issuer that is not investment grade, um, you know, you should be careful of, but I, I think you're probably paying a lot of attention of what they're doing. So um, I, I don't know. I, it just sounded a very weird concern to me. Yeah, this this is this is so interesting because I I have also seen um, I think there's that there's a paper from two researchers at the IMF that's quite critical of the SLB bonds out there, and there was a recent there have been a couple of pieces on Bloomberg. Uh, looking into the provisions of SLBs and saying uh, it's really the targets are not ambitious enough and it's too easy to evade them. But I, I, I've also been fascinated by these make holds. So I, but we also want to move on uh, before our time is up uh, to ask you about even more esoteric aspects of uh, uh, these bonds. But one one last question from me on this. Uh, so just to get it clear in my head, many bonds, uh, especially in the Latin American space, I, I, if I'm correct in remembering the data, have these redemption provisions where you pay a rather substantial amount calculated through this make whole formula that is so not actually making them whole. It's, as you said, it, it's actually a substantial penalty if you redeem it early. And sort of the economic logic is that basically if the country redeems it early because the country gets a benefit, investors are losing this nice interest rate. So they want compensation for losing out on a nice, predictable, juicy interest rate. Now, if, I, if I'm thinking about an SLB, would I expect that if you are redeeming it early because you don't think you're going to meet your target, that you promised in the SLB in terms of carbon reduction, that the make-whole amount uh, or calculation increases even further, or does it just stay the same? And now I know, again, we only had a few sovereigns, but I'm assuming that the same make-whole uh, structure applies for corporate bonds. And I, I know you, you, you've worked on a number of those. I, I don't know if this is that that was clear enough but i was yeah, wondering yeah, yeah. me yeah. too can i can i just make sure i understand the question so one way to think about this is if the if the make all provision just calls for the payment of principal plus um interests uh, the, the remaining coupons i guess and the call happens before the first step update is the question whether the remaining coupons are calculated at the stepped up rate thus being sort of a penalty for calling early or removing the incentive to call early versus calculating the coupons at the original non-stepped up rate is that the is that the underlying question uh i'll let ignacio answer it <laughs> yeah. because I, I think now yeah. i'm i'm a little confused i was more wondering as to whether or not so you have the standard make whole and it's a very very standard premium across, I think in a study I did with uh, Ugo Panitza, we looked at the make whole amounts 
and percentages across thousands of bonds in recent years. And they were pretty much within the same risk category, identical. And I was just wondering whether or not if you have an SLB and you're trying to, you know you're not going to make the target, whether or not the the make whole amount is adjusted for the fact that there's a step up or step down that you're not going to meet. Yeah, I think you're both talking kind of the same, but different aspects of the make whole provision, right? The make whole provision has two things. One that says you're going to bring the present value of all the different payments that you have to make to present. Um, but then there's also, aside from that, there is a premium that you have to pay which is something like 50 basis points, 30 basis points. It, it depends, uh, in my experience, at least on, on the maturity of the bond. Um, and, and that premium in SLBs remains the same. But what's important here is kind of what Mark was explaining, that when you're calculating the present value of the future payments that you're going to make, it's, okay, what interest rate are you going to use to calculate uh, the interest payments that you're supposed to make? And at least my experience uh, with with Uruguay and Chile is that they use, to put it simple, the the step up rate. Right? Um, it was in in Uruguay. It was interesting because we really spent a lot of time thinking about this because I think you have like different moments in time in which you can redeem the bond. You know, let's say that you redeem it before the observant date. Uh, then you just don't know what's going to happen. You could maybe anticipate what's going to happen, but you just don't actually know. Uh, in that case, then where Uruguay said, I'm, I'm just going to use the step-up rate to calculate the present value of interest payments. Um, if I do it between the observance date and the date that I actually supposed to to make the the payment, then already I'm going to, you know, I'm 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 already going to know or not know, but then I'm going to use the information that I know, and and so. Sorry, I think I'm getting a little bit confused myself. I should review it. But the, the point is for Uruguay was the moment that I tell people this is the new rate because I met the target, didn't meet the target, Uruguay has a step up or a step down. Then from there on, if I do a, a make whole redemption, I'm going to use the rate that is out there. But there's no opportunity for, for you know, moral hazard or anything because they, you know, if they do it before knowing, then it's the increased penalty. You, you know, in the in the sense of increased coupon rate. If they do it afterwards, it's just whatever is out there. So you know, they they playing by the rules of the game. Let's say that's really helpful, and and that's um that is. Uh, I noticed that when the Uruguayan bond was one of the ones I was reviewing in preparation for this, and I noticed that I I I wish I could say how common it was for issuers to include the ability to call early without paying the stepped up rate. I think I've seen one or two bonds that allow that, but but definitely not the Uruguayan one. Um, we've taken up a bunch of your time and I feel like we need like a musical interlude or something because we wanted to ask you a question that just had nothing at all to do with SLBs. It's, it's just totally off topic, but we've been puzzling it over and we couldn't resist taking advantage of your expertise. So, so if you'll if you'll tolerate a complete, you know, off-topic question, we've been um, sort of following this lawsuit by a plaintiff, Hamilton Bank, against Sri Lanka, 
which I, I don't think you have any involvement in. You correct me if I'm I'm wrong. Um, yeah. but but uh, basically, there are a number of puzzling things about this lawsuit. But one of them that happened quite early is that so the lawsuit was brought by the beneficial holder of these bonds, Hamilton Bank. And one of the arguments made quite early in the case by Sri Lanka in an attempt to have the case dismissed, I think Mitu maybe had seen this argument before. I never had. But the argument was basically that the bond, at least prior to acceleration, if I have this right, the bond only consented to jurisdiction in lawsuits brought by the holder, which was a defined term and was in fact defined so that it didn't uh, include the beneficial owner. It only included, I think, a depository trust or CD and co. So only they could bring the lawsuit. And of course, they have no interest in bringing the lawsuit. that argument was just kind of astonishing to me, in part because I guess I never read these instruments closely enough. But I'm wondering if you've been following that case or that issue, and if you can kind of help us think it through. Yes. Um, so yeah, I've been following uh, the Sri Lanka case. I think, so what happens when, when you issue a bond, right? We lawyers draft a lot of documents, um, but one of the documents that we draft is the actual bond, right? And the first paragraph of the bond says, Sri Lanka hereby promises to pay two. And there it doesn't say me too or Mark, it says CD and Co. And CD and Co is uh, the common depository for DTC. So where the bonds are clearing, right? So yes, when you're looking then at the indenture and you say the holder of the bond, the holder of the bond is the person who holds the bonds, which is CD and Co, the person that Sri Lanka said is going to make these payments. Now, the bond then, it's, you know, registering the system of DTC and people, you know, DTC has DTC participants who hold, let's say, a a portion of that global bond. Um, And in the turn, DTC participants have clients who are brokers, and then the brokers at the same time have clients who are beneficial owner. So there's a whole chain there in the middle. It could be a lot longer than that. I'm just using the the shorter example. So when you are going to sue, if you, Mark, go to the court and say, I want to sue Sri Lanka, um, the first thing that Sri Lanka is going to say, wait, you're you're not the holder. That's pretty common. It's not, you know, we've seen it before uh, as a defense. And, And then you have to show that you are the beneficial owner and have a right, let's say, to to sue. And there's a whole standardized process to do this, which is you basically go to DTC um, and you know, and you tell DTC, can you give me a proxy letter saying that you know there's a DTC participant that holds this position, and then there's you know DTC doesn't see all the way down the line, but basically you kind of build that chain down the line to say. I have the power because DTC has the power. So there's a way of doing that, all of that with, with letters, and it's it's pretty common. Um, so can, pretty, can I just, yes. the way, one way I've heard this argument framed, and now I'm I'm thinking this is not the right way to frame it, but the, the framing is that the, under the instruments, the only party that is authorized to sue is the 
holder defined to, in this case to be CD and co. But what you're describing sounds more like the natural sort of consequence of the real party and interest rules where there's just a, any old schmo can come into court and claim to be the actual holder, but we need some proof that this person is in fact the holder. And so there's a matter just of having an evidentiary chain that establishes that this person is in fact the real party and in interest. Is that really all that's going on? Yes, that's that's what's going on. I think, and as I said, we've seen it in, in a lot of cases, it's, you know, going up the chain is, is, is a lot of trouble. And I think that's why holders don't like it because getting the letter from DTC can take a lot of time. But I think that in Sri Lanka, this caught a lot, of, a lot of attention because the interesting point there is not that they were telling you, I mean, I don't know if at the beginning, but at least lately, the argument from Sri Lanka was not that you didn't get the authorization from CD and Co to sue. But the argument there is you are saying that you are the beneficial owner of this bonds, Hamilton Bank, but you're actually, you're not. There's someone else further down the chain that is the beneficial owner and you're just an intermediary. And, and so the person, CD and Co authorized the beneficial owner to sue and that's not you. So the person who is actually the beneficial owner should come forward and say who they are and be suing. That's how I understand the arguments there. And I think it's an interesting approach by Sri Lanka in a way, because as you know, they're trying to delay as much as they can their, this case. They're actually asking for a stay. But, but also because a, a lot of times plaintiffs do not want to have their name out there and you know, so that everybody knows that you are the NML capital suing Argentina, right? So they try to hide some behind someone else. And I think, you know, I don't know the background of all this and if really Sri Lanka knows anything of who might be behind it, but I think they're trying to find out who is behind it. Um, and they're saying Hamilton Bank cannot be the beneficial owner. Hamilton Bank is a, you know, it's a a bank that is regulated, I'm, I'm not sure in what jurisdiction now, uh, but you know, it wouldn't be buying these bonds for its own account, especially when at the time that it bought them, they were you know, very low value and, and probability of payment, let's say. Um, so that's, that's what's going on. It's, it's just kind of a flip side of, of this argument of not just getting the DTC letter, but also proving that you are the beneficial owner and not someone down the chain. Well, this is super helpful. And actually, even though, Ignacio, you and I have talked about this before, this this clarifies things even more. So I, I want to ask more sort of really nuts and bolts about this, uh, because I remember looking at, um, I think it was a province of Mendoza case from many years ago, maybe 2000 and. 15, where this kind of argument had been raised. Uh, in the, it, so it, if my memory of the Sri Lanka litigation documents is correct, Sri Lanka claimed that the beneficial owners had no right to sue, that only the registered holder had the right to sue, and that this was clear because you can see that the, the document doesn't have any mechanism by which you are allowed to get permission. And so it said, unlike 
the province of Mendoza case, where at least in the prospectus, there was something about getting how you could get permission. And I and now I remember it was the Appelstein case. And that's what the court in the Appelstein case rested their decision on, which was in the prospectus, uh, there was an explicit statement that you could get permission. So Sri Lanka, in this case, says there's no explicit statement here. So this is a totally different case. And, and the court here rejected that, saying, no, in New York, we have always had this tradition that you can, you can just get the permission. But I am wondering, oh, this thing, as you had said, it, it creates... Uh, delay, inconvenience, hassle, every damn time. And if I am the beneficial owner, as opposed to being some, you know, secretive uh, entity trying to hide my identity, I have the beneficial owner, I want to sue. You're not paying me my money. And now I have to spend weeks trying to get DTC to sign over the form. I have to look at the documents to figure out whether I'm allowed to sue. Like this, this should be, this should be clear in the documents. It seems like such a basic thing. And the reason I I pose this is that my understanding is that some documents actually have clarified this, and quite possibly you have worked on some of this clarification because I remember. The, and I could be wrong, please correct me, or if you can't talk about this, that's fine, although I think this is a good thing you guys did. Uh, in both Argentina and Ecuador, after the restructurings, those bonds make it really clear that this particular problem that arose in Sri Lanka, this beneficial owner, registered holder, just, just nightmare. They cleaned it up to say the beneficial owner can sue relatively easily. And I guess all of my question is like, this seems so basic. And we've seen now multiple litigations. And has it been cleaned up across the border? Or is it really just that Argentina and Ecuador deals that are cleaned up because you guys decided to clean it up? Yeah, I'm I don't know if it's just Argentina and Ecuador, but it's definitely not across the board. And and it wasn't because we decided to clean it up. I think it was because the bondholders asked Argentina and Ecuador to clean it up, probably after you know a long time trying to get those letters uh, in preparation for potential litigation. Um, and I, I I think the reason why it doesn't get cleaned up across is if we may, um, you know, I think generally. It's it's a big hassle getting all this when you get there, but the this the cases in which this is a problem are really just a few when you look at the you know all the amount of bonds that are issued on a daily basis, right? And and again, it's 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 not a hurdle that is impossible to overcome. You just need to go to DTC and get any takes time and so on. But I think what I'm trying to say is it's not something that people are focused on when you're issuing a bond for. For someone who is investment grade or who it's you know not investment grade but doing okay and has no foreseeable future of defaulting and being in front of a court um i think that's the only reason why we haven't yet seen across the board and we're seeing it only in those cases where we are emerging from a restructuring well ignacio thank you so much for coming on to join us um uh, as you know me too is 
teaching a climate finance class now, uh, along with Quinn Curtis at Virginia, and I'm teaching one in the spring at UNC. And this is um, going to be really an invaluable resource for our students. And I know for our, our other listeners too. So thank you so much. It's been great talking to you. Well, thank you guys. It was a real pleasure being here.